Well, hey, everybody, welcome back to the Zeitcast. I really can't say enough about how excited I am about this episode. And, um, Padraig, I don't want to do the thing of like starting off by just humiliating you with praise, but I have to say, you guys, um, Padraig Otuma has really become one of my favorite writers. I loved your poetry for years. I first discovered you from hearing you on Being with Krista Tippett, which of course, such an amazing show. But it wasn't until a few months ago that I actually got around to reading In the Shelter. And I, you know, I can really say without exaggeration, that just immediately became one of my favorite books. Uh, I mean, I just think the, um, the of, of course, again, I love your poetry, but the, the theological, the, you know, the theological sensitivities and uh, the way you approach and engage scripture and Jesus stories in particular, I just think it's, it's such an extraordinary book and it is an amazing gift to actually be at your place <laughs> hanging out here in Belfast. So thank you so much for it's letting me pleasure. come and get some time with you. You're very welcome. It's a really big deal. Well, thanks for saying nice things. Yeah. Well, all, all very true really is an honor. So I, I was, um, there's so many things I want to ask you about. And of course, again, having heard you on with Krista, um, I obviously won't start with Krista's first question. So maybe um, an uh, equal way, though, of kind of jumping into the deep end. And I've never asked somebody this first, so this is a bit of a science experiment here. Um, who, or if it's a better way to phrase it, what, who is God to you? Huh. Well, what an interesting question. Um I suppose I think of God as a story and a story that is written by humanity and maybe a story that writes humanity. Some kind of reciprocal idea um, that is a house for all of our anxiety, all of our hope, all of our desire, all of our hostility, all of our generosity and all of our mistakes. And that somehow either we write God, that God, that we write the God that writes us or mm. God writes us and then we write God back. Mm. Um, I'm not entirely sure where it all comes from. Mm. You look at um, the opening sentence to Genesis uh, in the beginning of God's creating of the heaven of the earth, uh, of the heavens and the earth, when the earth was welter and waste. What an extraordinary thing to say. Mm. Um, uh, the the welter and waste part of that in Hebrew is tohu vavohu, which means nothing. It's just nonsense language. Aviva Zornberg has done some extraordinary writing on that. Um, in, in Irish, you'd say re rogus rulabula, or maybe in English, you'd say higgledy piggledy. Mm. And so amazing how people choose language that has internal rhyme or assonance or um, repeated um, nature within itself. Mm. Higgledy piggledy, re rogus rulabula, tohu vavohu, pell mell. Um, it's amazing how the text lands on that to try to describe something at the heart of the beginning of everything, this chaos of the human condition. Mm. And so um, I suppose God to me is somehow involved in that whole chaos mm. and that both us and God come out of it. <laughs> mm. An image, uh, another image I like for God is the idea of table um, and a table that has um, always got space for more yes. uh, and always got enough, um, requires sharing and um, where nobody is at the head of it, mm. but that it's a table around which many gather, especially people who you perhaps um, might imagine wouldn't. Mm. Mm. That's beautiful. So, so rich. Um, one of the things I I feel like is so, that so electrifies your 
writing is there's this sense of, and I know you, I know your background is Catholic. Um, so I guess maybe the word I'd want to use is sacramental. I mean, of course, I always self-refer as a hillbilly Pentecostal and for all the things about that world that were, you know, pretty wild and that I joke about sometimes now, I do feel like it turned me into kind of an accidental mystic. Mm -hmm. And um, part of what I see in you, like there's just such a, I feel like you're such a mystic. There's such a real sense of, um, I always feel like that when I read your work, there's just a sense of uh, not only transcendence, but something of mediating that, that presence um, that, that is near, but yet is also other. And of course, again, knowing that you grew up Catholic, but then also have had these intersections with um, charismatic Christianity and all that. I'm just curious. When do you recall first being conscious of the presence of God in some way, which you would have identified as the presence of God? Um, I don't even know if I can answer that question, partly because these days words around God are complicated, mm. or even the word God is complicated. It's just a noise I make with my mouth, God, mm. do you know, dog backwards. Mm. Do you know, what, what does that mean? And there's words in every language for this idea called God or this thing that we call God. Um, and God isn't even a name. God is a descriptor. Mm-hmm. Um, so presence of God, I don't know. I suppose um, growing up Catholic, and I still am Catholic, on a good day, <laughs> uh, or maybe a bad day, I, um, I, God was everywhere in Irish Catholicism, do you know? Yeah. In school, um, religion was part of the daily thing. You know, you'd say the rosary, or you'd say um, the Angelus at midday. Um, the priest would be in and out of the school, you know, the question was, is when you, which mass are you going to go to rather than whether you're going to go to mass? Mm. Um, so in that sense, God is everywhere. Our village had a, a, an old well, and in the Irish tradition, wells are sacred. Um, that's that's an inheritance from pagan times or from mm. pre-Christian times. And so um, every year there was a small pilgrimage from the parish church out to the well where there would be a mass said, and then somebody would bring along lemonade and sandwiches. So... Um, God was as ordinary as Jew, um, mm. in in that sense, and uh, but not ordinary ordinary in the sense of being uh, casual. Um, but the idea of God was absolutely wrapped into the fabric of the everyday, as well as the language. Mm-hmm. You know the things like in Irish to say hello, you say "Dilgeth, God be with you," and the reply is "God and Mary be with you," and so "Dilsmurgeth," and so. In that sense, God was everywhere. And the mm. I, when people started to speak about the presence of God, when I got involved with charismatic religion, I found myself thinking, well, two things. I was a very guilt and fear-driven person, so I wanted to get things right. So mm. I adopted some of that language. But there was part of me thought, well, if we're speaking about the presence of God, well, then you're implying that there's places where God is not present. Mm-hmm. And so the presence always implied the absence. Mm-hmm. And so I could never get my head around that. And I still can't. Now mm-hmm. I'm just less frightened. So mm-hmm. I can say it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes so much sense. Wow. I mean, um, von Balthasar, uh, Hans Urs von Balthasar, mm-hmm. describes this theology of the Saturday between, you know, Good Friday and Easter Sunday of that in he describes Jesus as our tortured and abandoned brother mm. who goes to the places where God was not yes. uh, in order to remain there, tortured and abandoned, waiting for us. Um, he's speaking about the narrative of the descent into hell and yes. going into the places of pure abandonment. Mm. And so in that sense, um, especially the places that might be the most fear-laden 
are the places where if I do think about the presence of God, I think the presence of God has to be there. Otherwise, mm. we're all screwed. Mm. Yes, yes. I love when Baltasar has been hugely influential in my journey. And that, um, I'm curious that, I mean, that raises a couple of different questions for me. Like, um, well, of course, part of even the context might be worth saying to folks who are listening. I mean, the whole reason that this worked out is because of your friendship with my friend, Johnny Clark. Mm. And as we, talked about earlier just sort of you know the time you know your experience and kind of growing up in YWAM or going to well I guess you were a teenager when you were YWAM. I was 19, 18. Okay when you were 18 okay mm -hmm. so this very charismatic culture. Mm -hmm. um, I'm curious especially um, being Catholic um, because these days I don't know there's I mean I guess like everybody does I'm kind of in my own process of you know there are things I love and appreciate about my tradition but other things you kind of have to deconstruct. I'm just, I'm curious as to what your experience has been kind of at those intersections where, the, where there was continuity and where there was discontinuity mm -hmm. between Catholic and charismatic sure, spirituality. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, there's a big Catholic charismatic contingent. I sure. mean, globally, the Catholic charismatic movement, movement is enormous, maybe smaller now, but certainly from the seventies onwards mm -hmm. was huge. So there's lots of Catholics who think they're surprised when they hear of an evangelical charismatic mm -hmm. or Pentecostal charismatic. Sure. They're surprised that such a thing can exist. Um, I mean, YWAM in Dublin, YWAM is a large organization with many thousands of people working full time as well as then even many more thousands engaging part time over the, over the course of a year. Um, and YWAM in Dublin was predominantly Catholic. Mm. Um, YWAM rented the wing of a convent. And I'd say at times, 75% of us were Catholic. So, mm. I mean, we used to all go to Mass with the nuns every morning. Mm. Um, so there was a deeply devo devoted Catholic um, contingent there. YWAM in um, Vienna was the same. There were one or two other places that had a slightly higher population of Catholics. And they, they were known that if you were Catholic and went there, you would probably be unlikely to be tried to be converted mm. by some of your classmates or some of the people that would come through or some of the people who might be in leadership. Um, it's fair to say that like 99.9% .9 of the YWAM world is evangelical, Pentecostal, sure. charismatic, and so would be either unused, that would be generous, or unwilling, that would mm. be um, more critical to engage with Catholic people on the level of engaging with people as fellow Christians, mm. or Orthodox people, I should mm. say also, or maybe also a high Anglo-Catholic sure. uh, from the Anglican Church. So... Um, so YWAM Dublin felt very, in, in a certain sense, my sacramental sensibility deepened. I mm. started to go to Mass every day when I was there. I started to um, pray the Stations of the Cross every day there. Mm. I suppose, in, in a strange way, I became less charismatic um, involved with YWAM than, um, than more. I, I suppose I, I landed accidentally uh, through a series of coincidences into some of the writings of um, Francis of Assisi mm -hmm. and Ignatius of Loyola and I began to find some of their ways of reading scripture and their ways of a, a, a daily practice of prayer and mm -hmm. then things like the Stations of the Cross and Mass um, I found those to be um, pinpoints to a day that were more grounding mm -hmm. into the everyday and I kept on returning to those I, I began to find that I didn't trust my own 
intuition when it came to the question of charismatic prayer because mm. when do you start when do you finish what do yes. you say how are you in conversation with prayers that have been said for hundreds of years mm-hmm. how are you in conversation with the great word how do you learn mm-hmm. because if you're in the charismatic certainly for me in the charismatic way i i wanted to feel overwhelmed with everything i didn't know sure i've always been like that i love learning mm-hmm. and when i go to a course and somebody says right let's just all gather our thoughts together first i'm like I'm bored. I don't Mm. want to just know the sum total of everything in the room, interesting as it is. I want to feel overwhelmed with what I don't know Mm. and to have to study hard. And so um, the the charismatic tradition was a tremendous deepening for me in the sense of an introduction to faith. Um, And I don't think this is the same for everybody, but for me, uh, for me, out of theological and imaginative and of literary interest, I charismatic, the charismatic movement was really only a the door through which I walked. Mm. Um, that's not the same for everybody. Other sure. people were very content and challenged and growing in that environment. But for me, I suppose, um, some of the labeling that happens in religious communities bothered me. Mm. Is that person a Christian? Are they not? Mm. Are they properly saved? Are they not? Are they a proper Catholic? Are they not? Mm. I find that language abhorrent. I don't mm. give a damn if somebody's Christian or not or what mm. they say about themselves. I don't know what those things mean for me. Mm-hmm. Um, what I do know is that I try to be alive yeah. and that if there is a God that that God is paying attention to me and being alive mm-hmm. not because I'm anyone special but because God is found in the project of being alive mm-hmm. God has found the project of being alive I love that Padraig in terms of this whole idea of God being a story where do you see where do you see Jesus fitting into that story and into and into your story I I mean, the less I have been professionally involved with religion, the more I've gotten interested in Jesus. And I have been very interested in Jesus of Nazareth for a very long time. Uh, and I do think it was writers like Walter Wangerin Jr., um, mm-hmm. the Lutheran pastor and writer whose work I admire so much. Um, Frances Hogan, a scripture scholar in Dublin. Yes. I really admired her um, lectures. I heard a few lectures from her. And um, it was people who took scholarly interest at the the brothers at Taizé in France, that monastery in France, people who took scholarly interest and serious um, narrative attention to the text of the Gospels. Mm. There was a man from a charismatic church in England, Ken McGreevy. He too used to spend so much time when he spoke about Jesus, he would take a text. And at the end of an hour-long talk, you would have gone through that text through so many different points of view, and it mm. was uh, enlivening. Whether or not you felt like you wanted to believe in God or whatever that means during mm-hmm. the day, you had spent time in a close reading of a text, mm. an ancient text, and a text that's sacred, if for nothing else than the fact that people have been reading it for hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. And so I um, became really, really interested in very close readings of text, mm. wanting to learn as much Greek uh, for the Gospels as I could, um, and then trying to look at what are entry points into this text? How can you read it in a way that opens up the imagination? How can you find some complicated corners? Um, is this a text that will be used for sectarian purpose? Mm. Or is this a text that has unexpected hidden corners in it where God might be found abandoned also, mm. uh, waiting for all of us who are abandoned? Um, I, I mean, I've loved poetry and reading since I was young. And for a long time, I hadn't felt that my literary interests were welcome in the halls of religion. Mm. And what was lovely about people like the Teze brothers, um, scholars like Amy Jill Levine, 
all of these people who opened up a text and said, use the best of your brain, mm. ask the question. Mm. And uh, Amy Jill Levine, who's a Jewish scholar of the Gospels, and then reading Midrash, I found myself really interested in taking the text so seriously mm -hmm. that I could ask whatever the hell I wanted. Mm. Because a belief in that is the belief that the text is robust enough, yes. resilient enough, strong mm. enough and capable of dealing with our deepest protests mm. and abandonments mm. and questions. Mm -hmm. Not that it gives necessarily easy answers, but right. that somehow the engaging with the question of the text itself is part of a wrestle. Mm -hmm. And so... I love the stories of Jesus of Nazareth. I find them fascinating. I, I suppose I I did a master's in narrative theology, particularly focusing on the Gospels. So I think of the four Jesuses that we have in the Gospel tradition mm -hmm. and how interesting they are. I wonder sometimes what Jesus of Mark, who was so much mm -hmm. about action, would think of Jesus of Matthew, who mm -hmm. just preaches all the time. Um, what the Jesus of um, Mark, who is so concerned about secrecy would think about the Jesus of John who seems mm -hmm. to walk onto the stage and say hello and say hello everybody you can call mm -hmm. me God and that I find to be so uh, interesting mm -hmm. I find myself curious about the Syrophoenician woman who you know after he said to her it's not fair to take the food from the table and to give it to little dogs she mm -hmm. quips back with him with a double diminutive mm -hmm. oh but sir even the little dogs eat the little crumbs mm -hmm. And what an amazing person she is. And yes. how fascinating that we have that text. That one's in Mark. We have that text where she is capable of arresting his attention. Mm. And he is capable, to give him his due, he is capable of, in the moment, being able to say, oh, yes, okay, I've met my match. Mm -hmm. And he praises her um, for saying this, you may go, the devil has gone from your daughter. She's the only person woman or man, Gentile or uh, Jew, slave or free, praised for their words in the entirety of the mm. canonical gospel wow. tradition. Mm -hmm. And I wonder how many other people had Jesus bulldozed through before he met somebody who could throw words back to him mm. and make him pay attention. Mm. Uh, a Jewish friend of mine said to me once, the reason that he is unimpressed with the Christian texts is because they're so anxious to portray Jesus as so perfect. Mm. And they said, read, read the whole of the, of the Hebrew Bible. Where do you find a perfect hero? Mm. Uh, perfection is the antithesis to heroism in mm. the context of the Hebrew narrative. And so they said, this friend said, while I believe that Jesus was a Jew, the stories about him aren't very Jewish because the stories aren't brave enough. Mm. And so we then looked at that text and they said, okay, this one, this is getting there. Mm. And I just find that endlessly fascinating. Yeah. Um, Karl Barth said that, you know, after the manger, everything was achieved yeah. in this question about what is the significance of the birth, the life, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Mm. Uh, some atonement theories would seem, seem to reduce everything to, oh, you know, the death or the resurrection. Right. But there's a long, uh, there's a long debate about how to interpret the New Testament when it comes to that. And for me, if we are to take the idea of the story of God in Jesus of Nazareth seriously, it, it requires us to take this character seriously mm. um, and not the fact that he was executed by state forces. Mm -hmm. He was executed for a reason. And so let's yes. look at the reason, which is a way to live. Mm. Um, and so I, for me, I'm, I'm very uninterested in the question of heaven, really, mm. because 
if there is a heaven, it'll look after itself. Mm. What I'm very interested in is, is it what's it like to exhibit moral courage today mm-hmm. um, and to engage with people who convert me towards um, something towards which I need to be converted to? Mm. Yes, yes. Oh, that's beautiful. I do feel like um, that's part of what I love so much within the shelter, especially when I talked about how much I love the way you engage gospel text. I do feel like there's such a deep reverence that's there and that sense of the the sturdiness of the text to be able to, you know, it's, it's the further I go, it's interesting how much it just seems that, um, I don't know, fundamentalism actually doesn't reverence the text. It's like, this is, no, this is, it's actually in the wrestling that there's an opportunity for a a sacred encounter with God. Mm. And I feel like that's what infuses your work is there's this space for these things that are so, that are holy, but also are deeply human and just the, but, but it all is present in the wrestling. Sure. I mean, I can't speak for fundamentalism, but I certainly can't speak for my own fear when I was approaching. And I feel like I had been taught this to approach the text with great fear and no Mm. imagination. And I, I had no interest in the text. I was just petrified of it and of hell and whatever. And when I was being schooled in those ways and I was studying theology, meeting scholars, observing people who could look at a text and go, what do we think? Mm -hmm. Uh, And weren't just concerned to get the answer correct, Mm -hmm. but were taking their own intellectual capacity seriously enough to read the text Mm -hmm. that that caused a conversion. Uh, it, it opens something up mm. in Luke uh, you know there's this bit when it says a teacher of the law came to test Jesus and said um, what did he say uh, he asked him a question and Jesus said you know the Torah mm. how do you read it mm. and then that's where the Good Samaritan story eventuates but it's such an interesting response that you hear from Jesus so Jesus is challenging prodding pushing and asking a question about literary interpretation. Mm. So you know the Torah. So mm. that's a statement. But also, it's a challenge. Mm. Do you? Like, do you know it? Mm. Are you are you making stuff up? Are you making the text say something that it doesn't say? Mm. And then, how do you read it? Mm. And do you read the text that gives you permission to think that you can come and test random strangers as mm. if you're the arbiter of the gates of God. Mm. Who the hell do you think you are? Yeah. That seems to be what this guy is doing. Mm-hmm. And then it says, the man was anxious to justify himself. Mm. So he asked, who is my neighbor? And this is the genius of the psychology of Luke, anxious to justify himself. Mm. This man wasn't asking a question about heaven yeah. or the beyond. This man was trying to prove something about himself. Mm-hmm. It was his measure of greatness. It was his size competition. Mm. And Jesus is locating it firmly back into the incarnated moment that was happening then, mm. which is that there's a person who's anxious, who's covering it up by being a bully in front of him. Wow. And he yeah. brings that person to, re- to reflect on the energy that they're looking at. Mm-hmm. It's an extraordinary thing to do. Mm-hmm. And I think it shows the, uh, the ways within which religion can sometimes be used to decide who's in, who's out, who's going to heaven, who's yes. going to hell, blah, blah, blah. And all of that is an appropriation of the text into mm-hmm. manipulating people in public. Mm-hmm. Recently, I spoke at this sociology thing and a man came up to me afterwards and wanted to ask me... Um, he was saying to me that I wasn't a good Catholic because I was. I said something about 
I implied that the authorities of the church, the magisterium, should be um, subject to the gospel. Mm. And this man um, was challenging me, saying that I was incorrect. Mm. And I quoted a Vatican document back at him, Gaudium et Spes, and as well as De Verbum, the doctrine of the, the theology of revelation from Vatican II, mm. which totally contradicted what he said. Uh, and he said, oh, um, I didn't think you'd know that one. <laughs> and I was so annoyed. I was like, who the hell are you? Yeah. Uh, he, he, I mean, he was challenging me because he doesn't like that there's gay people who are yeah. uh, speaking about matters to do with religion sure. in the public field. And I was speaking as a sometimes Catholic and as a gay person in the context of this um, sociology event. Mm. And I thought, who the hell are you to set up a little test to see mm. if I pass? Mm. And I thought, like, we need to do something much better towards each other. Yes. The integrity of the gospel will be shown in our capacity for vulnerability towards mm. each other, not in our capacity to be boorish bullies towards each other, mm -hmm. to set up arbitrary tests to see who can remember what document on any given day or not. Mm -hmm. That's not integrity. Yes. Integrity will be found in something of the heart meeting the heart. And that's profoundly more frightening mm. than memorizing any document mm -hmm. or doctrine. Mm -hmm. Yes. Oh, so true. So true. I, Padraig, when you talk about, because um, I certainly wanted to ask you about that in terms of, because I found especially reading the book, and then you've talked about this other places, but one of the more painful things uh, to me to read is just, you know, your experience of, uh, and I assume that's during the YWAM years, um, in the process of coming out, the reparative therapy and all of that, and even talking about ways that religion can and is used to, uh, in ways that, that constrict and harm. I mean, I feel like I have so many friends who have those kind of stories where that ended in some kind of a loss of faith because there was such trauma, there was mm -hmm. such abuse. Um, where did you find, where did you find the resources to cling to faith and to work out those issues in a context, in a community um, where, where it, where it, was it okay to come out? Like, how, where did you find those kind of resources within yourself or within the tradition or within the text mm. to kind of find a through line mm. to, to, to begin to make sense of your own sexuality in context of the story of the church? Um, uh, there's so many answers to that, one of which is just time and risk and um, feeling for a while like I was split in many parts. Mm. So there's, you know, there's no, there's no simple narrative of a through line there's um, amazing people who I knew respected good questions. Mm. And I, when I lived in Australia, I was going along to a Catholic parish um, run by the Dominican brothers. And most of the Dominican order of priests, most of them were scripture scholars. So week, mm. weekday mass was amazing there because you'd get a 10 minute mini scripture um, lesson from somebody who had spent decades um, studying the original texts. And so that was a, a joy to be mm. around people who were able to take the text seriously enough and also pay attention to the, the context of your lives. Mm. So I knew a few amazing priests who were very, very um, uh, good and kind, but also challenging. Mm. One of them said to me, have you ever been in love? And I was saying, no. You know, kind of thinking, um, you know, you're asking me, am, am I sinning? Mm. And he was like, no, no, like, why not? Mm. And what an extraordinary question. To wow. go to, I, I I was kindly in the company of people who really helped. I was going to psychotherapy for a few years. That gave a huge help. Mm. It happened to be at a Jesuit um, um, spirituality center, 
and so it was um, psychotherapy fully uh, it was um, it was secular psychotherapy I wasn't interested in going to anything religious especially after the abuses that I'd been put through through reparative mm-hmm. so-called reparative therapy which was neither reparative nor therapeutic mm-hmm. um, so I, I think some really good people um, helped um, some really good risks <laughs> you know mm-hmm. going on a few dates uh, telling nobody, yeah. feeling like God Almighty, I'd be fired if anybody knew about this. Mm-hmm. You know, there's nothing to replace that. And mm-hmm. um, trying to give up on God, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I um, totally and utterly did everything I could at times to try to stop this question of God from being so interesting. But then I'd go and do the Stations of the Cross as a way to get rid of God. I'm like, oh, oh my wow. God, I'm so that's my problem. Uh, or I'd go on a retreat to mm-hmm. think about how what it would mean to stop believing. Um, mm-hmm. But, I mean, change is the constant in the sense of that the way that I think, that the way that I thought about the question of God when I was 18, I don't recognize that frightened boy. Mm. I'm sorry for him. Yeah. And he has been abused. Mm. And there are people in leadership where I would much, I would really want to ask them questions to say, where was your intellectual and imaginative thinking? Mm. Why were you at 45 mm. willing to put up with immature infantile ways of speaking about God yeah. that caused abuses in young people mm. and so uh, I have serious questions about that mm. so the God that I believed in then I do not believe in now mm. um, and I suppose I'm much more interested in believing in the question now mm. uh, and I found great comfort in being around poetry has saved my life mm. I've written and read poetry most days most of my life Mm. And so um, getting more and more comfortable to be in the poetic community of the world where um, people are always asking questions about God um, in and outside publishing that is particularly to do with God. Uh So people are always posing these serious questions about what does it mean to be alive in the world? Mm. Um, I suppose I feel a great sense of community um, Mm. in poetry. I had for a while I had been taught to fear the outside, whoever that was, you know, and that that the little gated community of imagination felt like it was limited to charismatic, ecumenical Christians of a very particular flavor. And they're lovely people. Sure. But what I rejected was the idea that anybody who wasn't in there wasn't a lovely person. Yeah. And uh, I have found myself feeling utterly at home in the world in a very, Mm. in a secular way, and feeling like this, if anywhere, is the place to find the integrity of living your life. Mm-hmm. Um, beyond the question that God will tell me who's right and who's wrong, mm-hmm. who's in and who's out. Because that's mm-hmm. where violence lies. Yes. As soon as I can categorize you as other, I, can, I begin to categorize you as other ways too. Yes. And that's the experience of being a gay person, um, is to be categorized. You know, I got mm-hmm. so used to being in roomfuls of friends, people who I loved and who I still do love, mm-hmm. who said, awful things about gay people thinking mm. that there were none of us in the room and of course there were plenty of us in the room none of us knew each other sure. <laughs> we were too frightened too under threat um, that's um, that's a terrible way to have to mine for your own dignity mm-hmm. and um, I suppose I'm uninterested in doing that to other people mm. which of course indicates I'm perfectly capable of doing it there's all kinds of yeah. walls I can put up towards people yeah. but I am interested in how we can meet each other in the vulnerability of our lives Mm. and let that be our power rather than resting on something that is an addiction to certainty. Yes, yes. Um, When you describe those moments where 
of of actively of of trying to let go of faith and of God. What do you think? What kept you in? What What do you think it was that in this, especially when everything in you is actively pushing against? Like, mm-hmm. why do you think you weren't able to? give up or, or what held on to you however you'd frame that yeah I'd go on dates with guys years ago and we'd end up having lengthy theological discussions you know over a few pints in a gay bar which is not unusual I think yeah. gay bars are filled with people talking about the experience of religion um, I, I don't know partly I think that there's something rhythmic in the human condition um, mm. there's something about the rhythms that we've learnt um, rituals rhythms the narratives um, that we that we engage with for our lives, not because they mean the same thing throughout our lives, mm-hmm. but because they're great world narratives. Yes. And I think for me, the older I've gotten, the more intellectually convinced I have become that it is great to have your own canon. Yeah. And for some people, the canon is Battlestar Galactica. Sure. Um, or the Lord of the Rings or the Iliad or Beowulf mm-hmm. um, or Dante's Inferno. There's a well-known um, psychoanalyst in, in Belfast who, whenever he speaks... He just quotes the Inferno over and over. It's the mm. great text of his life. It's beautiful. Mm. Um, and for me, I think it's the Gospels, as mm. well as poetry, as well as Lord of the Rings, mm. um, as well as Paddy Kavanagh, as well as Mary Oliver. And then mm. there's new poets being added to this. Kai Miller, an extraordinary Jamaican mm. poet whose work I just love, and many others too. And so there's something about having a narrative that you're in conversation with. And for mm. me, the Stations of the Cross the Gospels, were narratives that I needed them even for my rejection of them. Mm. And my rejection of them was built on a deep engagement with them. Mm. And they become like a talisman for your life, like a rosary, mm. like prayer beads. Mm-hmm. Something that helps you to punctuate the seasons of your life. Yes. Um, throughout all the different experiences of believing, of not believing, of trying not to believe, of trying to believe. All of that, that's just a big that's the drama of the world. Mm. Uh, Rilke says um, in his poem, I live my life in widening circles. It finishes by saying, I have been circling around God, that primordial tower. I have been circling for a thousand years mm. and I still do not know. Am I a falcon, a storm mm. or a great song? Mm. <laughs> wow. I love that. And the question for me, the human question is, what is the primordial tower of your life that you mm. have been circling around? Mm. And I don't have any idea about what it should be. I just want to know what it is. Yeah. For some people, it's a question. For some people, it's a text. For some people, it's an, some people, it's an experience. For some people, it's the dispossession of land yes. in their family's history, in their country's history. So, but I'm really interested in the primordial towers of our lives. Mm. Oh, that's wonderful. I, I love that, Padraig, you can't talk about any of these questions of faith or meaning or religion without talking about poetry mm. and how central it is to your own soul. Mm. And um, even the way you referred earlier to, and I do feel like, I mean, I guess I suppose everybody feels like they're the time that they live in is extraordinary in some way or another, maybe extraordinarily dangerous, but it does feel like it's such a uniquely fractured, volatile polarized and polarizing kind of moment that we're in. And um, I, I do find myself more than ever in my life, and I've always loved poetry, but retreating to it more um, that almost any poem, no matter what it's about, 
has a hymn-like quality to me. There's something mm. that you know can feel like it feels like a cathedral. There's a safety that's there, especially um, with so much violent speech around us. Why? What is it about poetry in particular that's especially important in a moment like this? Mm. Well, I think, I mean, taking your point, and I, I, I do think that a lot of people are becoming aware of the the tendencies and the constrictions of the world. For a lot of other people, they're just saying, well, welcome to the world that we've always known. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Glad you've woken up. Yes, yes. And glad you've begun to look around. Or... We're sad that our pain didn't get you to pay attention. Yeah. It's only when you begin to feel like the world isn't suiting you mm-hmm. that you begin to feel like things are terrible now. Mm-hmm. Sure. <laughs> um, so poets have been writing um, extraordinary things for years. Mm. Um, Sappho, I mean, Sappho is just known in Greek literature as the poetess mm. um, in a time when only men were allowed to be taught the strict and complex rules of poetry. Mm. She... Um, uh, ruled over those strict mm. and complex rules working within them and w- doing things within those strict and complex rules that no man could do mm. and most of her works her works only survive in fragments and so there's one when she says we have no idea what this poem means but in the middle of it the only thing that's left is I do not know what to do two mm. minds in me mm. an amazing ancient and contemporary um, fragment for us to have oh. um, I was reading uh, poetry the other day poetry some of which is named some of which is anonymous that was written um, in the late 1800s in the United States of America um, by uh, people who had been enslaved uh, mm. as well as people who had both indigenous American as well as um, abducted African heritage mm. in them and the poems that they wrote, how extraordinary it is to read those, to feel foreign to them, mm. and to be brought into the fact that people have been using poetry to try to create worlds of meaning mm-hmm. since the beginning. Mm-hmm. In the beginning. If you ever read Genesis chapter 1 in Hebrew, or in Everett Fox's translation, where the poetry is really carried through, you mm. realise the text opens with a poem. Yes. Um, and it was evening and it was morning first day and it was evening and it was morning second day and it was good and it was good. All these repeated phrases that built up a music to the ear. So people have been turning to poetry, religious people, any people paying attention to their lives mm. for as long as people have been writing mm-hmm. and probably even longer than people have been writing. Mm-hmm. Marie Howe says that what was the first poem? Probably a mother humming a lullaby to mm. her daughter or to her son some kind of repeated phrase where you recognize that the music of sound can carry through emotional meaning. Mm. So you build up assonances or M sounds or Mm -hmm. liquid sounds, things that are not plosive, you know, maybe fewer Bs and P sounds and and longer Mm. R and L sounds and M sounds and elongated vowel sounds. You find these in most of the lullabies around the world, that you get this repeated mm. music, whatever the lang- language might be. And often the extraordinary thing is that p- some lullabies are, are stories about the death of a child. Mm-hmm. And so people are putting their fear into the hostility of a text that nonetheless is shrouded in a soft music of language mm. in order to try to ward off the possibility of the thing that you're singing about mm. um, happening to the person that you're holding. Wow. And so... I think poetry is part of the human condition. Mm-hmm. I mean, poetry is lyric in the sense yes. of that it has a music to it, 
it has some kind of percussion to it and in that way it repeats the first sound that we hear which is the sound of a heartbeat mm-hmm. and uh, in that way there's something primal about poetry yes and similarly and i'm exhibiting the opposite of this by talking too much but not at all poetry has a lot of blank space on the page mm-hmm. and there's something really interesting when you write a poem and certainly for me in writing poems the idea is to just strip the meat off the skeleton of it yes scrape the meat off the skeleton from it to just let the skeleton stay to let it do something interesting to let it mean something to others that it never meant to you Mm -hmm. Terence Tilly has a book called Story Theology where he says the author of a story cannot control a story's power to reveal Mm -hmm. he's speaking about the gospel authors which is an extraordinary audacious thing to say the author Mm -hmm. of a story cannot control a story's power to reveal and when uh, we read um, poetry it means something different to the mm-hmm. reader than it did to the writer mm-hmm. and it's only one question I'm not even sure it's the best question to ask about what did this mean to the writer mm-hmm. the another question is what does it mean to the reader yes and to to believe that whether or not you feel like you're getting the poem right or not mm-hmm. to recognize that the language is power mm-hmm. and power to lament power to create power to destroy power to ward off yes. power to call down power to dignify power to demean uh, language is extraordinary power as well as being powerless yes uh, and i i think that's why poetry for me has been so important mm. yeah i grew up with two languages um irish and english and then learned french in school and developed a, a utterly amateur interest in sign language as well and so for me um knowing other languages has been part of the idea of of the power of poetry mm-hmm. and training as a conflict mediator has been part of the power of poetry mm-hmm. because conflict is its own form of poetry yes and um, conflict can create and destroy mm-hmm. it can enliven it can electrify it can exile it can do terrible things and beautiful things mm-hmm. religion too all yes. of them they're all projects of language yes yes i say these days i say i believe in language more than i believe in anything else mm. Yeah, and it's interesting that the first thing that the poets who put together Genesis did was to put language into the mouth of God. Yes. I think there has been a long tradition of people for whom language is the primal sacrament. Mm-hmm. Well, and the thing that language in John's Gospel too of in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. It's just yes. that centrality of of Word. Mm-hmm. Um, Padraig, this I don't I hope this doesn't feel like too much of a random left turn, but even talking about you know the way the reader interprets i'm going to ask you this just for fun because i'd love to get your thoughts especially a few years ago uh kind of going through my own kind of shipwreck season i rediscovered the poetry of job in a very different way which was it because it it definitely was a book that never resonated with me before Mm. and i would love to just kind of hear your riff in particular on the last few chapters of Job, when God talks back, I've spent the last few years, I've spent so much time in, 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 the, in that poem in particular. And I'd love to know just like, just what you do with that. Mm. What do you think's happening in that whole, in that whole exchange? Well, I've been thinking about this lately because um, a friend of mine who's a poet, Marie Howe, she was giving a talk in a, an Anglican church in Memphis, in Tennessee, in the country of America, um, 
at the church of um, Scott Walters. And she had that, the, the reply of God read out um, at great length during mm. this service. And like lots of people look into that to think, here's all the questions raised by Job. Mm. And then here's this obscure answer that comes from the God character in that right. great epic poem. Um, Marie, and, and they look into that to think, uh, Job's an- is Job answered, is Job not, etc. Marie located it to say, this poem put into the mouth of God at the end of Job is um, the first eco-poem. Mm. You look at the data about the world that mm. is in that. You know, the deer, the behemoth, the mm-hmm. leviathan, the morning stars singing together for glory. Yes. And you look at oh, the grasses, the wind, the sky, um, the way the sun rises here, what the, what the colours look like on that landscape, mm. um, the buffalo, all of these amazing things. And you realise that in the middle of this, we are reading a poem that glories in mm. the created order. Mm. And uh, I, I mean, I, I think one of the things about Job is, is that I mean, Job was written over hundreds of years, really. You know, there's the original ending, yeah. starting the original ending. And then people thought, no, no, we need to make it more complex. And they added a bit. And so they said, no, 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 we need another few comforters. They throw in a bit there. So I don't think there's any one singular idea that resolves the idea of Job. But one of the amazing things is, is that the answer put into the mouth of God is a great epic eco poem yes. that asks Job, look around you. Yeah. Look. Mm. Uh, pay attention. You are of the created order of being. Mm. Look. Mm. And I think that is a fascinating um, yes. call to a certain kind of moral action. Mm. And Annie Dillard reminds people very deliberately that, you know, looking at nature doesn't make you suddenly think, oh, isn't nature beautiful? Like nothing terrible happens there. Right. Nature's wild. Mm. You know, nature is um, frightening. Terrible things happen in nature. Mm-hmm. And so Job is being called to say, are you any different to anybody else in the mm-hmm. created order of things? Who made you expect that things would work out easily mm-hmm. when you might look at what's just happened to a family of mice, for instance, yes. half of whom have been eaten? Yeah. That's just the ordinary way of things. Yeah. That pe- so maybe maybe Job has been called to pay attention to that. Mm. Um, there is something, too, about... Um, Job's audacity when he says, though you slay me, I will still argue. Mm. I love that. And that God then argues back and Job doesn't back down. Mm-hmm. Um, I suppose he does towards the end. And he, he somehow the, the theodicy question of Job is left open as to whether it was answered or not. Mm-hmm. Do you know, does Job find anything um, that justifies what happened? Yes. And does God find any justification in it? Mm-hmm. And I, I think... Partly the drama and pantomime of the book of Job is delicious. You know, you've got this old idea of a royal court up in heaven. Right. You've got this fantastic Hasatan character who wanders in. I always imagine this, you know, the Satan character is it's just the accuser. Hasatan is how that's said in Hebrew. I always imagine that he's wearing a smoking jacket with huh. a cigarillo and a cravat. Uh-huh. You know, they're so dramatic and yes. camp and ridiculous, really. Mm-hmm. That isn't any... Um, representation about what the order of God is, mm-hmm. if there is such a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, this is entirely played out in human spectacle. Mm-hmm. Who created a God that is as teenage as to boast and then to be 
grappled with by this manipulative mm. accusing character mm. and then the god go oh my god my arm's been twisted behind my back therefore i've got to murder all these children and right. kill all these things and oh i'll give them 10 more children at the yes end. i mean the 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 camp drama of it mm. is something akin to gilbert and sullivan if people mm. know the gilbert and sullivan style of drama yeah. which doesn't make doesn't demean it it just locates it on a stage yeah. where i'm not sure the question is about the question of God in Job. Mm. I think the question is about the question of human to human. So Job yes. and the three comforters and the latter comforters then. Yeah. I think that's the real drama that happens there. Mm-hmm. And what kind of things do we say to each other? Mm-hmm. And what images of theodicy, of justice mm-hmm. in the world and of God do we fantasize about all the while ignoring the extraordinary drama of the wide stage of the created order mm. of the world in front of us? Yes, yes, so true. I mean, it's... Because it feels like after the accuser disappears and that introduction is like, well, why do you need the accuser anymore if you've got friends like these? Yeah, it's kind yeah. of, and, you know, and it's not just that they're, that sort of the answers are wrong, but the very idea that there are any answers in yeah. light of that kind of suffering. I think I just, I was so struck a while back by this notion that, for one, I think I just started to read the the poem more playfully instead of like God being harsh, that the, the God character in the text is much more, there's a playfulness to this and there's just, I, it, it it somehow it struck me where Job early on asked God, "Am I Leviathan or Behemoth that you would crush me?" So like there's this understanding that Job, of course with Leviathan being the chaos monster that God wants to crush the chaos monster. God has an adversarial relationship with the chaos. Mm-hmm. You know what God comes back with is like, "Hey." Let me tell you how great Leviathan is. Like, like Leviathan. Oh, this is my plaything. This is like the rubber ducky in my bathtub. You know, I, you know, I could put a hook through its nose and have him whispering sweet nothings in my ear. You know, but it's just this—the relationship to chaos. Mm. You know, this idea that uh, of of coming to be somehow uh, more at home in the chaos and the wildness of created things. Mm. That invitation, like, yeah, we're we're not that different in yeah. that way. And the illusion of control is one that we need to develop a, a new and profound relationship with. That I mean, so much of what you see of control is about fear mm-hmm. and the desire to control things because you're frightened of the alternative. Yes. Well, you're going to die anyway and you'll go into the great unknown. Yeah. And so you might as well start working with a relationship to fear now because mm-hmm. it, it will find you. <laughs> it will find all of us. Yes. And so um, I find over and over again that the biblical characters are haunted by the things for which they have no questions. Mm. Abraham is haunted mm-hmm. by what he fled from in Ur, where his father tried to throw him into the fire. Mm-hmm. Um, I think uh, like you even see the, the Genesis garden, the Eden garden. It's got that tohu vavohu at the start of it. Um, I think they're all haunted. Job is haunted. Yes. I think Jesus too is haunted by... Who did he meet in the desert? Mm. And what was that? Mm. What brought him to think, well, I throw myself off the top here? Mm. Like, what brought his imagination to just think, screw it, I'll end it? Mm. Extraordinary. Or I'll take a shortcut. Yeah. Or I'm interested in material wealth. Yes. Like, what brought him there? And I think over and over again, we all will be brought to the questions of reckoning with ourselves. Mm-hmm. That's far more frightening than a devil. Mm, yes uh, wow and suddenly then we have to pay attention to ourselves and i think the biblical literature is a great friend in that sense not mm. because it gives you an answer mm-hmm. but because it gives you company 
Wow. With oh, all I these other that. characters. Mm. It's beautiful. Patrick, I can't thank you enough for the gift of this time. And it really is because I am such a fan, an extraordinary thing to get to be here where clearly this is a space where you read. Yes, and I would totally surrounded by books. I, I would feel you know, I, I would feel honestly delinquent if I didn't at least ask, uh, if that doesn't impose, if you would read a poem for us sure. before we close. That would yeah. be wonderful. Sure. Let me see. Um, here's a new one. Oh, a new one. Okay. Brilliant. I mean, it picks up on what you were saying. So here's one called, Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Um, I for a while I was writing a sonnet a day um, I really like form so mm. it's not only in religion where I like old things I like um, form and poetry and prayer as well mm. so I'm very interested in sonnet or any of them I mean, you can write whatever poems you want and I write both in form and out of form mm -hmm. but I enjoy the playfulness of form at times so um, uh, I think this really did come as a, as a response over years really of thinking about that challenge from my Jewish friend, well, Boris, who said to me, your ways of talking about Jesus are just, they're boring. Uh, so this really is a, a response that came from this. Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You weren't that perfect, weren't lamb pure or cocksure with certainty. You weren't as innocent as you're made out to be. You knew people, you knew power games, knew that the main aim of ambition is ambition. You knew the names of other people's fears because you had plenty of your own. You knew the touch of a friend was not dependent on their cleanliness, and you knew this because you knew need, knew the way that story bleeds through actions of a day, and how shame makes us play parts that are beneath us. You are beneath us, and above us, in the song we sang as children. You are in the piss and blood. You are spit mixed with mud. You are the rotting hand of God waiting for a hand to hold. You're not gold. You're rock cracked open. Mm. Well, that's amazing. Thanks. That's extraordinary. And thank you so much for being willing to read something new. Oh, oh you're welcome. <laughs> you know, of course, that I could do this forever, but I have um, I have sense enough to stop on that because it's such a uh, such an arresting and wonderful way to end. So thank you so much just for your tremendous gift and for sharing it with me and with the folks who are listening to the podcast. Uh, really can't say enough about just what a how remarkable this is to get to be here with you at your place and just so appreciate you sharing with us, friend. My pleasure. Really, you're very welcome. It's been lovely to have you. Thank you. Yeah, thank nice. you. Thank you.